a roundup of the main business news from China and elsewhere. This is Global Business. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to this hour of Global Business. We'll also talk about the Netflix. They're leaping into live events uh, with a $5 billion deal. Plus, French president says reparations for the Paris 2024 Olympic Games are on track or preparations. Uh, we will focus on sports headlines as well from around the world. First, though, polling stations are starting to close across New Hampshire as Republican candidates Nikki Haley and former President Trump compete for votes in the presidential primary. Polls earlier in the week showed Mr. Trump with a double-digit lead over the former South Carolina governor. We're now joined by Karina Mitchell, who is in Manchester. Karina, what do we know so far? Phil, it is good to be with you. The temperatures are dropping, but the primary race is heating up and the world is watching. The majority of polls closed just seconds ago, with the remaining polls set to close in just under an hour. But voting actually got underway very early, just at midnight in the tiny town of Dix Hills in New Hampshire. And uh, six Six people there registered to vote. It was a clean sweep for Nikki Haley, not necessarily the way the results will end today. There are 22 delegates up for grabs on the Republican side. As you mentioned, Donald Trump, the front runner, according to polls. Now, the New Hampshire Secretary of State said to expect record turnout in the primary today. We are hearing that there was very heavy turnout. We're also starting to get those first set of exit poll information that is very preliminary preliminary so expect that information to change but very telling about the people that turned out to vote today 63 percent identified themselves as being very conservative or somewhat conservative meanwhile 31 percent identified as being moderate but compare that to Iowa when that number was just nine percent so that's a big swing in Nikki Haley's favor if she can convert it 64 percent say they are not a part of the MAGA movement 49 percent are registered undeclared voters. That is more than registered Democrats or registered Republicans. Also something that will work in Nikki Haley's favor. Now, the key issue for voters, 34% said it was the economy. Just 3% say that they think the economy is in excellent shape. We actually had a chance to head out to a polling center in Manchester early today. Business was brisk, if you will. There was a lot of people there. Everything moving very smoothly. And we had a chance to talk to many of them and who they voted for was as divisive and as telling as why they voted for the candidates. Take a listen. For Nikki Haley. Why? Um, because I think she's the only alternative and I think she's the best uh, candidate and I think the country needs a change. Why did you choose Donald Trump? Uh, just because, um, you know, it's been, it's been a rough couple of years I'm, I'm I'm very disappointed with Joe Biden I think that he's actually stuck with his word now these are the people that really matter forget the pundits forget the polls they are the ones that make the, the decisions Phil Karina, it's no secret that uh, Nikki Haley has bet really big on uh, the state of New Hampshire. It's the second big state, but it means a lot. Um, what are you hearing from the campaign there as to assuming they do well or what the expectations are and then what might happen next? 
Yeah, well, she really did bet big. And just to give you some insight, some context into that, the Haley campaign spent about $29 million on advertising in New Hampshire. Compare that to Trump, who spent about $15 million, Ron DeSantis about $7 million. So she really went all in. Why? Because this is where she thinks she can find the momentum. This is a state that most closely aligns with her messaging. That's why she's been out and about meeting voters, doing, you know, all of this retail politicking, trying to bring them over to her side, trying to gain their vote, saying she is the best alternative, Trump. She is the one who can go toe-to-toe toe -to -toe with Biden in a general election. And she's got a message for naysayers. She says she is staying on in the campaign. You will see her in South Carolina. That is her home state. She is not going anywhere. She has raised, she said, $1.5 million since Ron DeSantis dropped out of the race. So she said, do not write her obit yet. Trump, of course, wanting to end everything tonight. He said that he expects her to get out of the race by tomorrow, but he also says he doesn't care if she stays in. The results will start to roll in, and we will see how it all ends up, Bill. All right, Kareem Mitchell, thank you very much. On the road there, of course, following this important story. Whether it's about your education, the home you live in, or the items you buy, your money has a story to tell. Because every business story is a human story. Global Business. Welcome back. And Netflix is making the first jump into live uh, streaming events after signing a huge deal with TKO Group, uh, the parent company of WWE. It's a 10-year, $5 billion deal with an option to, I guess, kill it after five or extend it for another 10 years. WWE's flagship program, Raw, will debut on the platform starting in 2025. This is a loss for the NBC uh, streaming platform, Peacock, which currently has a WWE network and WrestleMania. Deal also gives Netflix the rights to WWE uh, IP, allowing them to create scripted shows and programming. Netflix stock rose 1% uh, ahead of their earnings. John Terrett has more. Netflix is just quite simply one of the most exciting companies of the modern era and is closely watched by Wall Street. And in chronological order of the day on Tuesday, they began by announcing a major deal with WWE. Now, WWE stands for Worldwide Entertainment. I've always thought of it as wrestling, but I wrote to them once and said, can we do an interview about wrestling? And they wrote back and said, WWE is not wrestling. And it's true, but, you know, it's a sort of wrestling, it's a sort of stage theatrical event, and people love it the world over. Well, Netflix's big news is that they're going to broadcast live WWE Raw, which is the flagship program of WWE. This will start next year. It's a $5 billion deal by Netflix, and it's all part of an expansion away from the basic site. So you know that you can see extraordinary movies and television programs and stream them. Well, in the future, in order to expand its business, Netflix is looking to go into live events such as WWE and also gaming as well. And then after after the closing bell, the earnings for Netflix came out and they were pretty good, although to be fair, they were mixed. Earnings per share was a miss, revenue was a beat, but for the latest quarter, they added 13 million subscribers, where Wall Street had only been looking for eight or nine million. So that's quite a significant increase. And as a result of that, in the grey market, immediately after the news came out on Wall Street, Netflix shares were up by about 6%. John Terrence, CGTN, on the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange. 
for more about Netflix, its earnings, how's it compared to other streaming services, who's the winner, Michael Collins, uh, CEO of Wincap Financial and Adjunct Cap Faculty at Endicott College. Good to see you. Um, you heard John there talk about their, their earnings, a slight miss on earnings. Uh, sounds like a slight beat on revenue, but I think the surprise comes as in its new subscribers, right? They're expecting eight or nine million and they got uh, 12 or 13. Uh, was that a surprise to you? Yeah, you know, there was a huge beat on subscribers and there's a phrase on Wall Street, you know, uh, guidance trumps earnings. So the market's really focused on not the slight earnings miss that they had today, but the potential future growth with the big surprise coming out of the European Union and the Middle East. They added about three million more subscribers than the market expected. So that was the big surprise in the subscriber count. Remember when Netflix changed their model, or I guess added to their model, where you'd have a, a pay a smaller fee, but then you'd be subject to ads? Since then, the stock's been on a rocket ship forward. But just because you have uh, because you have more subscribers doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have more profit. Case in point, this past earnings uh, report. That said, is that strategy uh, working out for them to charge a little less but collect on the ads? Yeah, I think it will play out well for Netflix. One thing uh, not many investors are aware of is the T-Mobile uh, Netflix on Us program, where many uh, subscribers got free Netflix subscriptions. They're actually going to transition all those subscribers to their ad tier over the next 12 to 18 months. So that should be very accretive uh, to their ad service because all these free uh, subscribers are going to move to their ad platform. I see. And then this, we had this other, um, which is odd, we had this huge announcement uh, right ahead of the earnings with the WWE deal. And I, I've heard, I, I'm not a huge fan of the, of the wrestling, but other people are, and they keep telling me how big this deal is. Help us understand, what, why is this such a big deal? Yeah, Netflix believes that the WWE has been under-monetized on a global basis. While it's relatively popular here in the U.S., you know, overseas, they think they can kind of crank out more revenue on that service. You saw maybe about a year or two ago, they had wrestling events in Saudi Arabia and other parts of the world. So I think you'll see a continuation of that. And then I think Disney, apologies, Netflix will be a better steward of uh, that brand uh, in terms of their streaming rights. Um, my jaws dropped when I saw total worldwide subscribers for Netflix is 260 million plus or minus a, a few hundred thousand. Um, this is a absolutely huge number. Amazon's trying to get in the game. Apple's trying to get in the game. And there's a bunch of other players as well. But it sounds like to me, and it looks like to me, that Netflix essentially is the winner. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, it really just comes down to quality of content, um, especially as they expanded their film business over the last decade. There is some, you know, kind of the slightly concerning news out of there. They did lose their uh, chief uh, of film, Scott Stuber. Um, so they're going to be looking to replace him uh, shortly. He left to start his own film company. The valuation, though, of the company Netflix is uh, certainly not cheap. A lot of good news has been priced in, uh, at least according to experts. And you look at where the stock goes from here, at least what the company does from here, there's only so many subscribers out there. I suppose you can get the whole world to be subscribers, or you could potentially raise prices, which they tried that last time, and, and there was quite the reaction over it. What's next for the company? Yeah, you know, you mentioned the WWE deal. I think that's a preview of what's to come. They're describing that as, like, sports adjacent and sports entertainment, that they're not really getting into live sports. But Netflix has said stuff like that before and then turned it around. 
There's also other opportunities in live entertainment. We saw earlier uh, last year, you know, people spent about $30 million to rent a Taylor Swift concert. Could Netflix turn and do live entertainment with comedians or concerts and charge a pay-per-view uh, fee for that, raising, you know, effectively raising average revenue per user without raising monthly uh, prices? They did say in their quarterly letter that there's still a focus on average revenue per uh, member, and they expect that to continue to go up. And I think this is one of the levers that they can pull to do that. Uh, in addition to the Monday Night Raw, uh, they also get access to the pay-per-view rights to all their special events, which again, on its head, you know, isn't the biggest deal for just WWE, but it's what else can they put into that monetization category. Where does that put their, their other competitors? I mean, the Hulus and Amazons and the Apples of the world, then you, you still have the, the YouTubes, um, which has plenty of content on there, and then a bunch of sort of second or third tier uh, streaming platforms like, say, Paramount. Um, it's got to be hard for them because you can't have all these subscriptions, right? At some point, and, and we've seen this in statistics, is you get overwhelmed by these subscriptions and you end up canceling one or two, and Disney, you know, as great as Disney is from their branding standpoint, they've struggled as well. Yeah, I mean, if you've ever watched Disney Plus, the volume of content, especially new content, is pretty limiting compared to what you see on Netflix. So I think that's where they can really excel. Um, you know, also, they have tremendous cash flow growth. They generated $1.5 billion of cash flow versus expectations of $1.25. They plan on spending $17 billion a year on programming going forward uh, with expansion into live uh, events fitting into that budget. So I think if they put on something that's a little differentiated, that is going to help them. I mean, Hulu is a great service, but it's, you know, four to five times the cost of Netflix. So you know, I think there's opportunity for Netflix to grow and be a value to consumers. Even with the price increases that they had before, you know, people push back and you hear people complain on social media, but, you know, the cancellations weren't that material and a lot of the subscriptions ended up coming back. And then you have this uh, password sharing issue, which seems to have generated more users in the U.S. Yeah, I think, uh, I won't say who, but you should not share passwords. Michael Collins, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us on this fun topic with Netflix. Thank you. Next up, fake online returns drain the e-commerce companies of hundreds of millions of dollars. We'll talk about that next. Images may appear to be identical, but looks can be deceiving. The difference is not always obvious. It has to be discovered. There are always different sides to a story. We put the focus on the details. To see more, to understand better. CGTN. See the difference. U.S. retail sales uh, during the holiday season set a new record. Shoppers spent nearly a trillion bucks in November and December. That's an increase of just under 4%. Uh, but the ease of online shopping uh, that's driving sales is also driving a huge volume of returns. Also, fraud on the rise. Owen Faircloth explains. An ugly sweater race underway. These competitors embracing that perennial holiday gift, including socks, and scarves. 
They're either a charm or a curse, depending on your taste. But at least those ugly sweaters aren't contributing to a growing glut of unwanted merchandise. In an era when online shopping is so easy, those items or gifts you either didn't want or didn't need are adding up to billions of dollars in returns for retailers and a growing fraud problem. The US National Retail Federation says retailers sold more than $5 trillion of goods in 2023. $964.4 billion alone during the November to December holiday season. But $743 billion worth of merchandise was returned. And the amount of fraudulently returned goods is particularly eye-catching. Out of those returns, nearly $102 billion were fraudulent. That equates to nearly $14 for every $100 of merchandise returned. And it doesn't stop there. A quarter of those fraudulent returns were made either with bogus receipts or where the sender has switched out items of a lower value. And in one case, a box that was supposed to contain a return TV turned out to be filled with bricks. Retailers are under such pressure, particularly during that all-important holiday season, that goods are often refunded before they've been inspected. But retailers are cracking down on this fraud. In 2022, they allowed 22% of return goods without a receipt. In 2023, that number had dropped by half. And the ultimate winner in all of this is the reverse logistics industry and bargain hunters. This sector specializes in taking unwanted inventory from retailers, including returns, and selling it at steep discounts. Owen Fairclough, CGTN, Washington. For more about the issues of online returns, Sean Calebs spoke to Mikhail Lansar, founder, CEO of Store Connect, an e-commerce uh, solutions provider, uh, working with uh, e-commerce companies to reduce return rates. Here's what he had to say. Online return problem, I mean, as the report just said, you know, it was almost three quarters of a trillion dollars came back. It's a ridiculous amount of money. But one of the things we found is that small to medium businesses are really the ones getting caught up in this, and it's becoming a an absolute insane pressure on top of them to try and maintain this return rate and, and this expectation, which has really been set by the Goliaths in the room, like Amazon and eBay, with these free returns and building this expectation in the market that you can just order three or four different things and just return what you don't want. You know, that's it's creating a expectation in the industry, which really is not sustainable for all of the small to medium businesses out there. And I really think this is a lot of the cause of, of where we're at right mm -hmm. now. You know, the return rate is more of a symptom than a underlying problem, which is how do we make sure that customers are buying the things that they actually need and want as opposed to guessing online? Yeah, but then, you know, you heard that, thank heavens, that's a one answer, you know, one issue and one issue only, somebody having the nerve load up bricks and sending it back saying, hey, this is my TV, I want my money back. Let's talk about specific challenges that the online retailers do face maintaining profitability. You did talk about the, the medium ones during the big uh, behemoths, uh, but we heard about all that wonderful sales volume in the United States uh, during holidays. What kind of effect does that have? What kind of damper uh, does it put on? Well, what it does is it causes these small to medium retailers, and we've got to understand most of the online sales that are happening outside of those behemoths are family-run small right. businesses, right? And they don't have the resources to handle these massive rates of return. And a lot of what we're seeing is that the wrong items are being sent or there's not enough information on the product, and that's causing the shoppers to 
buy the wrong items and get that done. Fraud is another whole problem, obviously. You know, mm-hmm. if people are going to steal from you, they're going to steal however they want to steal, right? And that's obviously a problem. One of the ways to combat that is to charge for the returns that are coming back in. And we're seeing a lot more of that happen across the industry now. Yeah, Amazon, I know, is at least talking about it if they don't have plans for that down the road. Now, obviously, retailers really do what they can. They bend over backward to appease customers. They want this person back. But how far does yeah. it go? And is it different? You did talk about the fraud. You know, if someone's going to turn and rip you off, they're going to do it. I know that you're online. But what about how do you gauge what goes on online as opposed to a brick-and-mortar store? Is it, is it easy to rip those guys off as well? Yeah. I mean, it, the problem with online is you don't have the person right in front of you, right? In a brick-and-mortar store, you can make some calls and get payment and you can both look at that product and yes it's there you know there's a lot more of that trust that's built up over time there are products that are coming to market uh, that we're working with at store connect that allow retailers to get like a confidence score in terms of when they're going to ship the product and have an expectation on whether or not this is likely to be a fraudulent return and and if it is going to come back down that line they're all products that that retailers can definitely look into and definitely combat this problem. But I think one of the underlying things is really this idea of what we're trying to push of customer commerce, of really leveraging that small business superpower of getting to know their customer, you know? So in these really large online stores, you get the situation where people are Uh just buying everything because they don't really have a relationship with that business. They're just buying what they feel like and then return the rest. But in a small business, it's a real superpower to really get to know that customer and really build that relationship over a period of time. Next up, we'll talk about uh, the sports headlines and the Olympics back in one. Whether it's about your education, the home you live in, or the items you buy, your money has a story to tell. Because every business story is a human story. Global Business. Here's a look at some of the top sports headlines uh, making news. Uh, Palestine is one of the teams uh, looking to get through to the knockout stage of the Asian Cup. They joined Syria in the final 16, and the first time Syria has uh, reached this stage since 1980. And F1. Formula One is moving its Spanish Grand Prix from Barcelona to Madrid. It will take place in 2026 and make it one of the most fan-accessible courses there are. And the semifinals of the Aussie Australian Open are set. American Coco Gauff will play against uh, the number one seed on the women's side, while Novak Djokovic reached his 46th men's Grand Slam semifinal after beating Taylor Fritz. The French president says that all Olympic and Paralympic venues are on track to be delivered on time and on budget. Macron made an address to athletes and everyone involved uh, in the organization of the Paris 2024 Games. This Friday will mark six months to go before the opening of the Summer Olympics. Here's Ross Cullen. The president's office said this message would be one of determination, daring and unity. And the president himself called on everyone involved and the public to make this Olympic and Paralympic year a moment of unforgettable pride throughout the world. 
Ministers say they want Paris 2024 to be revolutionary, committed and to be profoundly useful to the entire nation and to sustainably transform France into a more inclusive and sportier society. Emmanuel Macron made this address at the National Institute for Sport, Expertise and Performance and that institute will be the home base this summer for the French Olympic and Paralympic teams. As I said in my New Year message, this year will be a vintage one. There will be a lot of events in 2024, but we wanted the Olympic and Paralympic Games in France and we went out and got them. They're here and now we're going to organize them all over the country. This is a unique opportunity to show the best of what we are, obviously in the world of sport, but also in what our country represents and can do in terms of exemplary organization. Earlier this year, the president said he hoped that sport and exercise would become a so-called great national cause for 2024. This year's Olympics will be the third time that Paris has hosted the Summer Games. The last time that it was here in the French capital was a century ago, in 1924. The Summer Games get underway with what is likely to be that spectacular opening ceremony on the River Seine on the 26th of July. Ross Cullen, CGTN. Paris. Six months to go. Uh, winter sports are booming in China though. Ski instructors are in short supply. Those hoping to teach are now uh, heading to Austria. Johannes Plushberger met one of them. Hong Kong born Andy Cheng teaches beginners at Austria's Kitzsteinhorn Resort. Make sure the pressure is on the downhill like us. We ski. The 17 year old moved here to improve his ski instructing. He's already reached level two and is now trying to be the first Chinese instructor to pass Austria's federal exam. I would like to try to reach the highest level in the Stalihir exam in Austria, which requires 100 days. And then it will get me very well prepared to organize and to improve the ski industry in China. Austria's federal ski instructor exam is considered one of the toughest in the world. It takes up to five years of preparation and not only requires excellent skiing skills, but also in-depth knowledge of equipment, snow conditions, avalanche risks and first aid. Hi Andy. Hello. Let's go. A few years ago, ski school operator Bernhard Ratschiller noticed Andy's potential at a skiing simulator in Shanghai. He suggested Andy could improve his skills in Austria, but he also wanted to make Austria's skiing knowledge more widely accessible for those unable to relocate. And so he started creating a ski school app. You don't have to grow up at the mountains to become then a good skier. Um, that it doesn't matter if you grow up like Andy in, in Shanghai in a big city. If you have that dream and that motivation as a kid, that you can achieve that as well. Let's have a quick look. Your performance at the turn, the hip is on the inside and the, the ski goes a little bit away from your platform. Yeah. You go online, you go on the, on the platform, you pick your coach and you will immediately have the access to the trainers of the trainers in Austria and they will give you feedback on your videos and will coach you through the season if you want so. Bernhard has now successfully trained 500 Chinese ski instructors. The new app will allow him to reach even more people in China and across the world. Johannes Blechberger, CGTN, Kitzsteinhorn, Austria. Uh, that does it for this edition of Global Business. Uh, I'm Phil Yen here in D.C.